this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We'll spend time in two chapters, 4 and 12. As Mark taught last week, it seemed appropriate that we would follow up with this. We'll start a new series soon, but we've got a couple of uh, teachings that will stand on their own. This morning is one. Before we get into 2 Corinthians 4, just a reminder of the author of this letter, this epistle, Paul, think of where he's at and what kind of a guy he was. This is a guy who, before his conversion, was the cream of the crop in Judaism. He, had grad, he was like a Harvard graduate, if you will, academically. Uh, he was at the top of the top as far as the Pharisaic circles. He was a Jew of Jews, he says in Philippians. He had impeccable credentials. If you could be important as a Jew, he was important as a Jew. Then he's converted. And importance skyrockets. You remember, this is the guy that is handpicked by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That, through the ages, that means you and I. He is arguably the most important or had the most powerful ministry in history, the Son of God aside. He wrote most of the New Testament. He raised the dead through him. Dead were raised, lame walked, etc., So this is a guy that arguably saw incredible, powerful things happen throughout his life. Important Jew, and then the kind of the top of the heap in in Christianity as well, so to speak. Let's look at Paul's, though, theology of ministry, or Paul's thoughts about this powerful ministry God had given him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll jump in at verse 6, but Paul has said that he has a ministry related to communicating the gospel. Some had believed and some hadn't. Starting at verse 6, Paul says, For God, or the same God in Genesis 1, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, that's the same one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The same God, Genesis 1, who spoke the universe into existence and said, Let there be light, That God, that powerful creator God, he's the one now who has said, let light shine, a different light, a spiritual light, uh, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have the knowledge of God. We have the life of Christ. That's the treasure. And the thought here is it's something that's placed. It's something of value that's placed intentionally. It's set someplace. And the place it's been set is in this earthen vessel. And remember in the days this was written, clay pots were everywhere. They were the cheapest commodity by which you could ship anything. In fact, archaeologically, you can go to the Mediterranean now and dig up these ships. They're full of these clay pots. They were cheap. They were easily made. They were easily broken and easily Replaced, And Paul says, we've got the life of Christ, the knowledge of God, the creator God and the redeemer God. We have this treasure placed in an earthen pot, a clay jar. And there's a reason. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So Paul says, in redemption, God takes his life and the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, and he takes that treasure, incomparable treasure, and he puts it in this plain, simple jar. And Paul says the reason he does that is so that the surpassing greatness of the power 
will be of God, not from us. And remember, he's talking about his ministry. This chapter, we're thinking of power related to ministry. So you've got the treasure in a clay pot. Look at verse 4. Now, if I'm thinking, or excuse me, verse 8. If I'm thinking of Paul's ministry, I'm thinking power. Look at what he says his experience is, though. Paul, the great apostle, he said, We are afflicted in every way. Afflicted means to be pressed, to be pressed in. On every front, he says, I'm pressed in, but not crushed. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I don't know what to do sometimes or where to go, how to get out of the circumstances I'm in, but not despairing. Persecuted. Think of context here. Persecuted by religious powers in the Jews, persecuted by the governmental powers, by the Romans, persecuted by every power that existed, but not forsaken. I've been struck down, literally and figuratively, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always, always, carrying about in the body the death or the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Always facing death, so that Christ's life may be manifested. Verse 11, we who live, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death works in us, but life in you. If God's calling me to a ministry and I think power and prestige, I'm thinking this sounds like a good deal. When Paul describes his ministry, I've got second thoughts. I've got second thoughts. Back to that thought that he says God takes this treasure, the life of Christ, the knowledge of God, and the gospel. This is all in the context of his ministry. Puts it in a clay jar He said back at verse 7, so that the greatness of the power will be of God and not from us. It will be evident. And down at verse 10 and 11, that death works in us. In other words, we're brought to an end of ourselves. Death, we're at the end of what we can do or what we can achieve. Death works in us so that Jesus' life can be revealed. That's his model of ministry. So the first key related to this in my thoughts on this chapter is that God displays his power and the life of Christ through common clay pots. That's the way he wants to do it. He accomplishes his ministry through common people like you and I. And think about this. God is not interested in what you and I can do. Your power and mine is of absolutely no value to accomplish God's work. It's spiritual, and it requires spiritual energy, and you and I have no ability to perform spiritual work, none. So if we present ourselves to God for ministry, the truth is we bring nothing with us. We have no spiritual power that's not in or from or through Christ. So he's not coming to us powerful people because we have something to offer him in the, sake of, in the realm of ministry. We have nothing. 
and you're faced with these impossible situations so that not that your power can be manifested, but so that Christ's power can be manifested. If it's spiritual work being accomplished, it's the Holy Spirit doing it. And that's through you and I, and he uses you and I, but it's not the power. It's not the ability we have to bring. Think of a couple illustrations here. These come readily to my mind. Think of Israel and the exodus from Egypt. And remember, we were talking about this a little bit in my men's study yesterday. Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. They're the most academically learned culture in history, perhaps. In fact, if you look back today, they knew pi well before the Greeks. We still don't know how they pulled things off architecturally, engineering. They're still a marvel. We don't know. This is the most powerful army on earth, wealthiest nation. For God, this represents, as good as it gets, power, wealth, influence, whatever you want to say. This is it. This is the pinnacle on earth, Egypt. And you got this slave nation that's oppressed by them. And what's God do? He takes this lowly guy, Moses, with a shepherd's staff, and he comes in and he confronts the most powerful nation on earth, and he shows them up. Not only that, he humiliates them. Remember when the Jews leave, eventually they rob the Egyptians. They take the wealth of Egypt with them. The Egyptians are glad to pay them off just to get rid of them. But if you go through that Exodus narrative, remember the Jews are not happy initially. Moses comes to deliver, and what do they get? More trouble. It's not better. It's worse. And yet each time Pharaoh opposes them and says no, each time the power on earth says no, God comes through this with this miracle, with the ten signs, the plagues. And then after they leave, what do they face? They face these impossible situations again. The army's going to overwhelm them. They've got no place to go. They, they're hungry and there's no food. They're thirsty and there's no water. And we read the story now and we say, well, gosh, it's obvious. You know, you're supposed to see that God will provide for your needs. God will bring you to an end of yourself, and all you have to do is ask him, and he'll come through. And, of course, he does. But as they're in that situation, what do they continue to do? They're crying. They're whining. They're complaining. But as we look at it and as we read the story, we understand, no, every time God orchestrates an impossible situation because he intends to display his power, not theirs. In fact, do you remember why he says he raised up Pharaoh? He says, Pharaoh, you're here for one purpose, that I may display my power. You've got power, but it's nothing. I'm going to overwhelm you with my power through a slave nation and a lowly shepherd. Or think of Gideon in the book of uh, Judges, the time of the Judges. If there was a fraidy cat and a coward, Gideon is it. You remember when the angel meets him where he's at? He's hiding, threshing out a little grain. He's afraid that the bullies on the block will take it from him if they see it. When God commissions him with his first job, do you remember to pull down his father's idol? What's he do? He waits till it's dark at night so no one will see him. This guy's afraid. And this is God's judge. This is God's deliverer for the nation. This would not have been my pick. When Israel picks a king later, who do they pick? The strongest, most virile-looking guy. He's a head taller than everyone else, right? And what is he in the end? You know, he's a carnal, lousy, wretched king, Saul. But here's Gideon, this coward. And God says, you're my man. Why? Because he has strength? No, because he has none. And he knows it. 
And then, in fact, you remember when he goes to deliver Israel to defeat the other army? He starts out with a pretty good-sized army. And what's God say? Get rid of them. Thin them out. Why? Because God says in the end, when you've only got a few hundred guys left against an army of thousands, when I deliver them, you're going to know. There will be no excuse. There will be no other explanation other than God delivered Israel. So we look back at those stories and we say, of course. We go to apply it to our life and we say, well, slow down. Hold on. This is not what we're looking for. Go to the early church. The early church was a group of misfit social outcasts, low lives. And if you don't believe me, 1 Corinthians 1, listen to what Paul says. This is to kind of a group that thought they were pretty good, pretty hoity-toity. They're in a very wealthy city, Corinth, very wealthy city, maybe like the United States. Listen to what Paul says. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Look around the church in Corinth, guys. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many high politicians or powerful guys in the army, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. If you didn't catch that, Paul said you're a group of foolish people. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Paul's saying you are a weak group. And the base things, the lowly people, the low lives of society, the base things of the world, the despised of society, God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Paul says to this church, when you see success in ministry, when you see conversions and people coming to the Lord and growing in Christ, you know it's not because you're such a great group. You're not. You're foolish as far as the world goes. You're low lives. You're outcasts. You're not the powerful. So when you look around, you should know, you should be reminded, it's not you, it's me. It's not your power, it's mine. Think of uh, Christmas or birthday. You know, when you get a present, <clears throat> you might get a present wrapped in gold uh, wrapping paper. I'm not a big wrapping paper fan, but you might get a really fancy wrap present. When we were kids, a family of 11, uh, on birthdays, it was acceptable. It was common practice to get your birthday present in a paper bag or newspaper. Mom had other things to do, clearly. It didn't matter if it was Christmas and a gold wrapper or if it was birthday and it was newspaper. The truth was you didn't care about the wrapper. The wrapper wasn't the deal. It was what was in the box. So I don't save my wrapper. You know what I do with it? I tear it open. Kathy likes to save wrapping paper. I guess it's expensive. I tear it off. I don't care about the wrapping paper. I want what's in the package. I want what's in the box. And Paul's method of ministry, he says, God's method of ministry is to take his life and put it in you and me and then to, to break us and to break us in pieces and to tear us apart so that his life comes through. So understand this. God's method of revealing the life of his son to the world is to put his treasure in you and me and then put us in situations in which we have no ability to overcome, no power to make it better or to deliver ourselves or those around us. He does it intentionally, not because he hates us, because he loves us, and because he knows the world needs not us, but his son. 
So he engineers these situations where we have no power. We have no power. You know, what do we do when this happens? What's our response? We're worried. We're working ourselves up. We're going to get through this. We're going to bulldoze our way through it, or we're going to call out. We're going to enlist all the help we can, whatever. And what's God saying? Don't do it. Your power will not get it, and that's not what I'm after. You turn to me. You allow me to come into the situation, and I'll reveal my power in your weakness. That's what I'm after. If you think about this, too, the ultimate, the ultimate example of this is the incarnation. Paul's quoting Genesis 1 here. Jesus is Genesis 1. John 1 makes clear Jesus spoke the worlds into existence. God the Son, the power of all powers, clothes himself with humanity, with flesh like you and I have. This is the ultimate hiding of power. There's no greater power than than Christ and his life. And he comes down in this fleshly wrapper, this clay pot like you and I have, and yet there's no greater power on heaven and earth than is in that clay pot, his earthly vessel, his physical life. And in the greatest act of weakness, nothing can be compared to Jesus' crucifixion. There's no greater power in heaven and earth And yet that power is displayed in total helplessness on a cross, pinned physically, unable to move, totally restrained. It is the greatest act of weakness in history. And yet what does it prefigure but the greatest act of power in history, the resurrection? So God himself clothes himself with humanity, becomes like us to display the ultimate weakness, crucifixion, so that the ultimate power, resurrection, can be displayed and you and I can be redeemed. Power in weakness. The treasure in a clay pot, not because the pot's anything, because God intends to break it open. God intends to bring you and I to the end of ourselves in the things, the ministries, the responsibilities he calls you to as parents or workers or in the church, whatever it is, he'll bring you to an end of yourself. Death works in you. Death works in me so that life, his life, comes through us. It's not what you and I have to give. It's what Christ has to give. So when you're faced with it, don't worry. Don't panic. Don't work yourself up. Listen to what Watchman Nee said. Lord, I'm faced with a situation that I cannot possibly meet. In his case, your enemy, the devil, has brought it about to compass my downfall. But I praise you that your victory is an all-inclusive victory. It covers this situation too. I praise you that I already have full victory in this matter. Not in himself, not in his his abilities, but in Christ. He understood, I'm not going to work myself up. This was a guy, by the way, who spent the last 20 years of his life in a Chinese prison where he died in 1972, one of the great teachers of the last 100 years. We'll move on to 2 Corinthians 12. We've looked at Paul and ministry. Let's look at his personal life and his personal experience. In chapter 12, Paul has had to defend himself to a very carnal group of Christians, the Corinthians perhaps arguably the most carnal group represented in the New Testament. In chapter 12, 
he is in part defending his ministry just so that they will accept what God wants them to have through what he has to say. In talking to them about his qualifications, he tells them that whether physically or in spirit, he's not sure, he was taken to heaven. He heard things, and he saw things that he was not able, not meant to communicate to others. Starting at verse 7, he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, I implored, I begged, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace or my favor, my help, my aid is sufficient for you. Paul, I've given you this thorn in the flesh because I know it's for your best And this grace I give you, this help I give you, related to that, is all you need. It is enough. It is sufficient. For or because power is made perfect or is made complete in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. His response, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I I am floored at this passage. And I confess, I am not at Paul's developmental stage here yet. Listen, he says, most gladly. I don't just put up with it. I am glad. He said, I am well content. About what? About his personal weaknesses. He says he's well content when he's insulted. He had lots of it. He said he's well content and glad when he is in distressing situations. When he is persecuted and thrown in prison, think of he and Silas in Acts, in prison at midnight, singing hymns and songs. He is well content and glad in difficulties for Christ's sake, because he fully believed that when he was weak, then he would actually be strong in Christ. This this turns your world and mine upside down. This means that when I would normally have occasion to be sad, depressed, despairing, going back to chapter 4, Paul says, you know, in those situations, I'm really glad. In fact, I'm better than glad. And I'm content. Because I understand in those situations, even though it's hard on me, I understand that that's when God's power will be manifest in me. Power made perfect in weakness. Power made perfect in weakness. The second key to his ministry and to his personal life here is that power is perfected in weakness so that when I'm weak, I'm strong. 
this turns our world upside down because all of our natural desire is to avoid these kinds of situations. If we really believe this passage and Paul's example, then when we get into the difficulties, the insults, the distresses, etc., we can say with him, well, Lord, not that I ask for this. James 1, you know, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. We're not happy about the trial per se. We're not delighting in pain as such. But we can say with Paul, Lord, this thing in itself is no good. But I acknowledge and I recognize that in this upside down world, You'll take my weakness, you'll take trouble, and you'll turn those things in your economy upside down and make it good. You'll bring about your power through my weakness. Personal life or ministry. So God allows, he not only allows, he orchestrates overwhelming circumstances. This is in your life and mine. This is in the life of Christians, his children that he loves. He orchestrates pain loss, difficulties, so that we'll turn to him for his power and his comfort. The power, love, peace, joy God wants us to experience is not possible without his presence. So he orchestrates these situations where we come to an end of ourselves so that his power can be introduced. So if you put this in your the world where you and I live. This means that when I experience financial loss, I should have this thought, when I'm weak, I'm strong. I'm in a situation personally that I I have no power to change. Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. That should be my response. Lord, I'm weak, you have strength. If things aren't good at home with your spouse or your children, when I'm weak, and I'm strong. Spiritual work, you can't accomplish. You can't change your spouse's heart. You can't change your child's heart. You can't change your friend's heart. When I'm weak, I'm strong. If I lose my job, when I'm weak, I'm strong. You see, this is upside down. It's backwards. We think, give me the strength. Give me the power. Then I'll do your work. God says, wrong. You're going to be crushed. You're not going to live. You're going to die first. Personally and in ministry because the world doesn't need you and you need more than yourself. The world needs me and you need me. So in these impossible situations, he's behind them. They're not accidents. We shouldn't try to avoid them. They're from him. He's allowed them. Even if it's the devil at work, he's allowed it. Paul's case, he orchestrated it. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And because he knows what we need more than anything else is not more of ourself, it's more of him. That's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. We need more of him, not more of ourself. So when I'm weak, that's when I'm really strong. In Christ, not in myself, in Christ. If you go into your house or mine, you flip a switch, you get a light that comes on. If you turn your thermostat, the air conditioner comes on and you're cooled and you're thrilled for that. If you push a button on an elevator, the elevator goes up or down. 
behind all that, there's these wires. There's these electric wires. If you took all those wires and you threw them in a pile outside the house, nothing would happen. You'd look at them and you'd say, well, it's a bunch of wire. But if that wire's connected to a source of power, KPNL in our circumstances, energy, those wires then become conductors of real power. There's no power in the copper wire. It has none. Can't change anything, can't perform any work. But if it's connected to a power source, it's amazing what electricity can do, carried along the conduit of those wires. No power in itself, but a conduit for a very powerful source. I used to, uh, used to go camping, and I looked, uh, searched for a good tent. And I bought a very expensive tent. I was very impressed with this tent. The truth was, if, if I took this tent out, it was a bunch of loose fabric. It was absolutely worthless. In fact, we took a tent to camp in Colorado one summer. We forgot the poles. And guess how valuable that tent was? We were tying cords to trees from loops and thinking maybe this thing will work anyway. It was pathetic. But if you take that loose fabric and you stick some poles in it, and then you stake it down, it withstand hurricane-force winds. But it's not because the fabric has any strength. But when you stick the poles in, it's got a shape, it's got form, it's got strength that the fabric does not have. That's you and I. So there's this thought, whether it's ministry, what you and I need to be about and doing as far as Christ's kingdom goes in our family, in our church, in the world around us, school, work, home, whatever. If it's ministry, or if it's your personal life, God says that what he's about is putting his treasure, the life of his son, inside you and I, a clay pot, so that he can break the pot open and reveal the life of his son. And that when we face these situations where we're brought to an end of ourself, that's when we see God's life, his power demonstrated. That when we're weak, that's when we're strong. Let me close with Isaiah 40. I think Chris read this a couple weeks ago. It's a great passage and one of great comfort to me. See, the Jews, they went through some tough times. And they're thinking maybe God's forgotten about them. Maybe he's asleep at the wheel and he doesn't see their pain and their frustration and their trouble. And God says through Isaiah, Do you not know? Don't you get it? Haven't you heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, Genesis 1, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding, his ways, they're inscrutable. His ways aren't your ways. That's why you're confused. But he gives strength to the weary. And to the one who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths, the young among us, the virile, the strong, the fit, though youths grow weary and tired, Vigorous young men stumble badly when their strength ends. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, his strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They don't have power to fly, but God does. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's the bottom line. We don't need more of ourselves, and the world certainly doesn't need more of what you and I have to offer from ourselves. The world needs more of what we need, which is Christ. 
Father, thank you that the ultimate act of power and weakness is met in the person of your Son. Lord, hard to believe that you clothed yourself with humanity to become one of us, that the ultimate sign of weakness was your incarnation, and yet, Lord, it was to display your ultimate power in the resurrection. Lord, the truth is we do not welcome pain and sorrow and difficulties. We do not like it. And I think of Jesus out of Hebrews that it was joy, the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking to each one of us and give us a sense that Paul had in 2 Corinthians 4 that though he might be perplexed, Lord, he didn't despair. Though he was struck down, Lord, he wasn't destroyed because he understood that you would take those impossible situations and bring about more of the life of your son in him and through him. Lord, each one of us is faced with situations, if not daily, regularly, that are above our ability to control or to affect. Father, help us with Paul to understand that it's you, it's your life, it's Jesus that we need. Help us to come to an end of ourselves so that you can reveal your life in us. Lord, we ask that it be more of you and less of us. Help us to be willing servants as you go about this work in us. And might your work be fully accomplished in us that you can reveal your life to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.